Brothers and sisters, let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 1 and verses 26 to 38 is our text for today. Luke chapter 1 verses 26 to 38. With God's help, let's turn our hearts to hear his holy and inspired word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We come now to the announcement of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The single greatest moment in the entire history of the world. Nothing ever has or never or ever will have the kinds of momentous consequences that Christ coming into the world has has had when it comes to the souls of men. We wouldn't be sitting here today if in the counsel of God's will, he had not ordained to see fit to send his son to ransom us from the bondage of sin and death. You'll notice right from the get-go, if you were here with us last week, that this passage clearly parallels what we looked at last week, the passage that precedes this text where Gabriel comes to Zechariah and he foretells the birth of John the Baptist. You have the appearance of the angel, you have the announcement of an impending conception and birth under very unique circumstances to a very unlikely kind of candidate. It. You have a description of the kind of ministry the child is going to bring. A question is raised on the part of one of the children's parents. A word of assurance is offered by the angel, and then you have a final response by one of the parents. So clearly, Luke means for us to draw a connection between these two moments 
of divine revelation. In fact, he explicitly ties them together at the beginning of this passage in verse 26 with the mention of the sixth month. Gabriel came to Mary in the sixth month. That's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So she's coming upon the the tail end of her second trimester. And so you have these two stories. They're inextricably intertwined. But at the same time, there are some very important distinctions that are to be made between the two. And that, too, begins at the very outset with the setting. You'll remember with Zechariah, uh, the angel Gabriel comes and he reveals himself to Zechariah at the entrance to the Holy of Holies. He comes to Zechariah and he speaks to him this word from, from on high in a place that is separated just by a matter of inches from the dwelling place of God, where the, the Ark of the Covenant is and the mercy seat. And, and the only thing between Zechariah and, and the, the Shekinah glory of God is that curtain embroidered with the, the image of, of the cherubim. So you have Zechariah in the premier locale for this word from on high. And the whole rest of the environment kind of echoes that same sort of idea. While Zechariah is on the inside uh, uh, in the, the holy place and he's listening to the angel speak, you have a grand audience on the outside. You have a multitude of worshipers and priests and they're they're waiting for Zechariah to come out and to lift up his hands and to pronounce the ironic blessing the Lord bless you and and keep you the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace it's in this this public setting Uh, This place that is widely understood to be the very epicenter of God's gracious activity among men, that the angel Gabriel comes and he speaks to Zechariah, and then we get to Mary. Where does Gabriel go to meet with Mary? Well, he is dispatched off to Nazareth, Nazareth and Galilee, and we we think maybe Galilee has to be mentioned here because nobody really knows where uh, Nazareth is unless you've, you've been there. It's about 100 miles away. It's kind of like if you're off traveling somewhere away from town here, um, you probably don't tell people if they ask where you live or where you're from that you're from Pearland or you're from Alvin or wherever else. You say, oh, I'm from the Houston area. Okay, well, now, I, now I've got my bearings. Now, now I understand the, the kind of, the, the sort of area you're from. Gabriel has gone to speak to Mary in Nazareth of Galilee. It's a place of obscurity. In fact, it's a place marked by something worse than obscurity. It's a place regarded apparently with some contempt. You remember Nathaniel's words, can anything good come out of Nazareth. It was a town of ill repute, or at least the kind of place you'd never associate with some, some, something prestigious happening. Uh, 
Yet look at the text, church. Gabriel is sent from God to Nazareth. Matthew says that he did so, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Matthew 4 and verse 15, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of sh- and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So, Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you have Isaiah and then the gospel writers after them use the physical setting of Jesus' birth as a kind of spiritual picture of the inroads that God's work of redemption is going to bring. God is bringing his redemptive plan to those living so far away from what seems to be like the the focal point of his activity on earth. It's as if the text is telling us in geographic terms, there's no backwater village that God cannot reach. Nazareth's removal from a place like Jerusalem becomes a sort of living parable of the kind of ministry that Jesus is going to bring to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. John says in John chapter 1 and verses 4 and 5, in him and Jesus was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So you see the setting, obscure, unlikely, but glorious nonetheless. Oh, you see the wonder of God's ways, the tendency of his ways we see so often to start with this kind of place. You have the setting. Secondly, you have the vessel that God chooses. You have Mary herself, Jesus's mother, which just amplifies this whole theme of lowliness and obscurity. The Christ child is going to be born to a woman without any claim to fame. She is not anyone that anyone knows except the Lord. The Lord knows her. He knows her address. He knows where she lives and what her name is. He knows her heart. He knows the purposes that he has for her, purposes that she could never imagine. At this point, she is described as someone who is betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now, that's going to become important later when we look at uh, Jesus's lineage. But for now, we see that this young couple is betrothed. In the ancient world, the time leading up to marriage was... uh, taken much more seriously than it, than it is in our own day. Uh, betrothal is not the same kind of thing as what we describe as engagement in, in our day and time. In the ancient world, betrothal was a recognized legal status such that it required divorce to, to separate. It was a serious formalized period of time. Usually it lasted about a year. So legally speaking, Joseph and Mary are married, but they're not living together. 
They haven't yet consummated the marriage and it's to this essentially anonymous young woman of marriageable age living in this obscure context, we hear Gabriel speak these words. Verse 28, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Mary has suddenly found herself in this position of knowing God's favor and grace apart from any reason on her part. Now, brothers and sisters, this does not mean that Mary was full of grace. That is a mistranslation um, that you find in the Latin Vulgate. That's a, a mistranslation. Mary is not the source of grace here. She is the object of God's grace. She is not a, a dispenser of the grace of God. She is a recipient of God's grace. Unmerited, in unmerited fashion, she has received God's grace. You have to love uh, what Luther says about this. He says, up to this point, this verse has simply been translated from the Latin, but tell me, is that good German? Since when does a German speak like that, being full of grace? One would have to think about a keg full of beer or a purse full of money. So I translate it, you gracious one. That way a German can at least think about what the angel meant by the greeting. You see his point. Every good German knows a keg is never full of beer. A purse is never full of money. Now how much less is a sinful man or woman full of grace? Mary is one on whom the grace of God has been bestowed, apart from any deservedness of her own. The Bible says that it is from his fullness that we have all received grace upon grace. By the grace of God, Paul said, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. I am. May we never forget that as we think about our standing with the Father, that it is through his outpouring of grace upon our lives that we are what we are. Now, Gabriel says to her, the Lord is with you. We may be inclined to look at that and think, well, how exciting. What a wonderful word to hear. And it is. But Mary knows something that we might not immediately recognize about that expression, that this isn't just an ordinary kind of greeting. It isn't what we sometimes describe in theological terms as a wish prayer, uh, the Lord be with you. The angel is not passing the peace, as it is called in, in some uh, church traditions. This is one of those hallmark phrases that comes when a divine herald brings the news that you have an important role to play in redemptive history. It's no less serious than that. God's words to Isaac, fear not for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. You remember Jacob's dream with the, the angels ascending and descending, God's words to Jacob, then behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised to you or to Gideon. 
The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Do you see the, the pattern? Are you beginning to pick up on the theme? It's that big of a deal and it's in the perfect tense here in our passage, which is to say Mary is already in this condition of being a favored one. She's already in a favored state. She is already the object of divine grace, which is what accounts for, at least in part, the the state of worry and disconcertedness that we find her in in verse 29. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. She's greatly troubled. When when Gabriel comes to, to Zechariah, he was troubled. When Gabriel comes to Mary, she is greatly troubled. It's a stronger uh, expression here. Now, why is that the case? Some have suggested that it was because a a male was approaching a, a, a woman that was a stranger, someone that she didn't know. And you see that kind of concern in the scripture uh, at a couple of points in time. Um, others have suggested that it was just the, the terror of seeing an angel. Uh, and you see that as well in the scriptures when you have angelic visit, visitations. But here, if you look at the text, Luke is careful to tell us that it's what the angel said that caused her perplexity. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So brothers and sisters, it's Gabriel's message that stood at the center of her concern. It was the fact that God's grace was with her, that his presence was upon her, that, that caused her to begin to think so ponderously, what's going on? What is the Lord doing? How do I, of all people, find myself in this position? Of all people, how do I find myself fitting into to God's plan? What is the Lord doing here? wonder if you ever feel yourself astonished, maybe not on this level, but astonished that you would fit into the redemptive plan of God, that God would be pleased to use someone like yourself for his purposes. Before Mary ever opens her mouth, you have that standard angelic word of comfort Do not be afraid, Mary. And then he repeats the message, you found favor with God. Now, church, look at what that word of favor, what this favor is going to mean for her. Verse 31, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, it was customary in those days for the father to name the child, And so by uttering this pronouncement, God the Father is clearly identifying himself as the father of the Messiah, of this baby who is going to be born to Mary. Think of passages like Psalm chapter two and verse seven. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he gives him the name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves 
Matthew takes the time to unpack what, what Luke doesn't quite pause to, to look at here. He says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So here for the very first time, Luke just pulls the curtain back just a little bit, and he gives us an indication of what Christ is coming into the world to accomplish, what he's coming into the world to do. Jesus' arrival signals salvation, salvation from sin. Later in the book of Acts, Luke is going to press home the significance of this fact after Jesus' crucifixion and burial and resurrection. And he will say, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone saves men from sin. He is the only hope of salvation for sinners like you and me. No one else can claim that for themselves. Jesus alone saves. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible says no one comes to the Father except by him. Now, from here, Luke begins to direct our attention to the glorious features that are associated with the birth of Christ. There are two major themes that we can trace out. The first is sonship. Sonship. Verse 32. It says, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So, beloved, the child who is born in these humble conditions to this, this woman who no one knows will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. We said that there are some, some distinctions to be made here between these two birth announcements. Gabriel said of John, he will be great before the Lord. Now we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and you notice there are no qualifications. It simply says he will be great. Full stop, no qualifications, no borderlines, no limits. He will be great. Jesus Christ will be great. Here we have someone greater than John. He is great. He'll be called the son of the most high. The son Mary is going to bear in verse 31 will also be the son of God. It's important that we understand Luke's statement here when he says he will be called the son of the most high, that that statement doesn't, doesn't signal the idea that this is a newly given designation that Christ will be taking to himself. He is not assuming sonship. This is the common way of saying, here is how he will be understood. Here is how he will be recognized. Here is who he will be understood to be among those he is ministering among. He is the son of the most high. You have sonship. The second thing we see is kingship. We sing, born a child, and yet a king. Here, uh, Gabriel says, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. This brings us all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter seven. You remember how uh, David says 
to Nathan, here I am dwelling in this cedar home. You heard the passage from Chronicles this, this morning and he had it in his heart to build a house for the Lord. Well, the Lord takes that desire that was on King David's heart and he turned it on its head and God said, I'll make you a house. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, it says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. He shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So this Jesus, this Messiah is the promised one of old come to fulfill this ancient world. As amazing as it might sound, this woman, this Mary, living in this tiny town of, Ma of Nazareth, maybe 500 people strong, she is going to give birth to a king, the son of David. There's an indication in the note uh, here at, at the very beginning of this passage about Joseph being of the house of David. Jesus's Davidic descent likely hangs on his earthly father's lineage, and that's no problem. Legally speaking, Mary is already Joseph's wife, and providing Joseph receives this child as his own, Jesus would have been under, understood to, uh, to be belonging to Joseph. He would have been understood as inheriting Joseph's ancestry. Now, what does David's throne signify? Well, you can find it in verse 33. It says, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Everlasting rule. Everlasting reign is what is associated with this Jesus. Not only will he be king, not only will he be one who is high and lifted up, but he will possess eternal power and dominion and authority. The eternality of Christ's regime is something that the angel Gabriel brings to the forefront here for us to just gaze upon. Isaiah chapter nine and verse seven says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. David's reign, as blessed and as glorious as it was, came to an end. Of course, we don't have time to retrace his whole tenure, but the end of his reign, the curtailment of his kingly reign was a disappointment on more than one front, wasn't it? He, he failed his people in a multitude of ways. It wasn't just the fact that he died, it was who he was. You remember how uh, the days where uh, kings, the, before kings, or established in Israel, uh, started out with everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. That's how the end of the book of Judges 
uh, concludes. In, that, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own, own eyes. And the, the whole idea of having a king over Israel really was a rejection of God's reign over the people. It began with a quest to be like the, the other nations who were around them, and so it was. They got what they wanted. And you remember how that, that starts off with King Saul, and we know how that went. We know the, the fiasco that that resulted in. And then David comes along, and we, get, we begin to think to ourselves, well, here's the one we're looking for. Here's the one that we really desire. He's the one that can step in, and then his life goes off the rails in a variety of ways, and we're left thinking to ourselves, well, where are we going to find the one that we're looking for? The very best that we had to offer David, a man after God's own heart, has failed us. What kind of man can ever bring these words to pass, establishing an eternal throne of righteousness and justice and peace? Remember, church, at this point, when Luke is writing this, these words, there, there is no king reigning over Israel. Uh, Israel had gone through Babylonian rule. They, they'd been through Persian rule. Uh, now they are living under Roman occupation. And yet, Gabriel insists that God's promises to his people are just as good as they were as on the day when they were spoken. We need a perfect king, and we find that king in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory days, far from being over, had only just begun for Israel. And so Christ came, and he lived, and he died a sinner's death upon the cross. It was not the kind of exaltation that anyone was looking for, was it? It wasn't what anyone had hoped for or expected. It looked like defeat until God raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand. And so Peter preached in his Pentecost Day sermon, Acts 2 and verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Brothers and sisters, kingdoms come 
and kingdoms come, but this king will reign forever. He will reign supreme. He is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether that is in vanquished defeat or happy submission, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Gabriel says he will reign over the house of Jacob. That's another term for Israel. As we go on through the book of Luke, we are going to discover that the Lord's plans for the Messiah extend far wider than just the house of Jacob. It will extend to all of the nations. What the apostle Paul describes as the Israel of God. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14 says, To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now it is in light of this marvelous news that we find a stupefied Mary in verse 34, saying, how will this be (laughs) since I am a virgin? Church, I want you to hold that up for a a minute against Zechariah's response earlier in the chapter. In the beginning of chapter one, Gabriel appears to Zechariah. He says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You shall call his name John. You remember what Zechariah says, how shall I know this? Some translations say, how can I be sure of this? And then he gives Gabriel all the reasons why this is unlikely to take place. I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. It was a challenge to the authority of God's word, and he was immediately stricken with muteness for his unbelief. But that isn't the case with Mary. She's not rebuked. She is not admonished. Why does the Lord chasten Zechariah, but not Mary? Notice the nature of the questions that they ask. If you look at verse 18, Zechariah says, how shall I know this? Mary, on the other hand, says, how will this be? Since I am a virgin, she hasn't known a man. But the key word here is will. How will this be? Young people, do you see the difference? Do you see the difference between these two questions? Zechariah says, how can this be? Mary says, how will this be? Isn't that wonderful? She immediately takes God at his word, even as she wonders how he is going to bring that word to pass in her life. You see, there are indisputable, undeniable obstacles to the birth of a child for Mary. Namely, she is a virgin. But her expression effectively says, yet I know that is no obstacle for the Lord. I just wonder how he's going to do it. How is he going to bring this to pass? Well, there you have the authentic nature, or the the nature of authentic Christian faith. Just in a few words, in Isaiah chapter 40, 
It says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. I believe that. I trust those words, but why? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. God has declared it. I may not know exactly how this will be, but faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You might use that same word we saw last week, certainty, that Luke spoke of with Theophilus back in that introduction. He wants Theophilus to have faith or certainty or confidence in the word of God, for it is by faith the people of old along with all of God's people, receive their commendation. Nothing else can commend us to God. Nothing else can make us heirs of righteousness. Simple faith in the good news of God's self-revelation to man. In Numbers 23 and verse 19, it says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Now let's look together at how the angel answers her question in verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now again, contrast that with what it says of John the Baptist. John will be filled with the Holy Spirit from the moment of his conception. That's an, that's an amazing thing to consider. While he is still yet in his mother's womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. But Jesus supersedes even that. He will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. So God, John's conception will be miraculous, but Christ's conception will be absolutely unique absolutely unrivaled and unparalleled. Again, Luke is giving us a picture of one who is greater than John. Greater than John. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. What's going on here? This is the same expression that's used in the Old Testament to describe the way the, the presence of God, the cloud of God's glory, would rest upon the tabernacle. God himself would condescend and super, supernaturally, personally, superintend his purposes, his promises, his people. You have the same idea in Psalm 91. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. So the power of God's presence is going to come and rest upon Mary. And you get the idea from this word overshadow that while Mary's role in God's redemptive plan is, is important, there's no denying that she isn't the star, if you get the drift. Mary is not the center of this story. Jesus is. Jesus is a centerpiece of this story. And yet, on the other hand, Mary is nevertheless integral to God's purposes. This is the whole wonder of the, the ark of God's redemptive plan and the way his purposes find their outworking in the world and that he stoops to use weak and needy sinners as the means by which he makes his glory known. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
In Proverbs chapter three and verse 34, it says, toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. That's what we find with Mary. The Lord is pouring out his grace and his favor on a meek and a humble woman. He doesn't choose her because she has something to offer her. She doesn't have anything to bring to the table except emptiness, if you will. That's all that there is. Isn't it marvelous as well that the Lord leaves out the details that might answer the question Mary asks more fully, how will this be? The mechanics are left shrouded in mystery. The biological ins and outs aren't there, and that's okay. That's not where God wants our attention to be. He is less interested in feeding our curiosity than he is inspiring worship and awe. He wants us simply to know that the child will be called holy, the very son of God. This is the Christ. Now, if you look at verse 36, God does something else amazing, especially in light of what we already know to have happened with Zechariah. God gives Mary a sign. Gabriel says, behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. On the one hand, you, you have Zechariah's demand for a sign. How will I know this for certain? Luke has a habit of showing the request for signs in his gospel in a, in a negative light. He quotes Christ as saying, an evil generation seeks for a sign. It's the Lord's prerogative to, to grant a sign if he wills, but it's not man's right to dictate or to demand a sign. Well, Mary doesn't demand anything, and yet she's given a sign. She is given an encouragement to her faith. Isn't that often how the Lord works? That he brings encouragements to our faith at just the right time as we learn to trust him. Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son for nothing will be impossible with God. That's the heart of the matter. That's the real answer to the question that Mary is wrestling with. God is on the move. Nothing's impossible with him. Nothing is impossible with God. Finally, let me just call your attention to verse 38. We said that if there's one thing Mary brings to the table, if we can use that expression, it's her, it's her nothingness, it's her, it's her emptiness, her readiness to subject her life to the purposes of God's will. In verse 38, she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She makes herself a bondservant to the Lord. She submits her life to him. One author says Mary's humble response of faith basically conveys, I do not know what all of this means, but I trust God to do what is good. We have to realize the personal loss Mary knew would almost certainly accompany willing submission to God's word. 
Again, we may be inclined to look at this and think to ourselves, well, what an honor to be chosen uh, for, for this kind of role. And it, it certainly uh, was, that is certainly true. But in the short term, uh, in her mind's eye, she knew she would be facing the scorn of the world, the loss of her reputation. What about her, her relationship with Joseph? Matthew tells us that when she was eventually found to be with child, that her husband Joseph resolved to put her away quietly until the angel came and spoke with him. But Mary did not yet know that that was going to happen. Mary did not yet know that God was going to to intervene in that way without divine intervention, she would be perceived, publicly perceived to be an adulteress, someone who was uh, subject to the death penalty under the law. At the very least, she would be a social pariah. And yet, even still, there are no what ifs. There are no questions raised. There are no conditions placed. There is simple obedience to the Lord, if it would please me, please you to use me for your purposes, let it be to me according to your word. If I can be a vessel useful in the master's house, let it be to me according to your word. And so, Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you, asking that we would be of the same mind of the same spirit, of the same attitude toward your purpose and your will. May it be so among us, O God. Lord, may you work in our hearts unreserved submission to your purposes, your providences, whatever they might bring into our lives. Grant to us, Lord, this this unquestioning spirit, one that is ready to to do your will that is eager to cry out and to say your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, whatever that might require of us. Lord, I thank you that your power is made perfect in weakness, that your, your grace is sufficient toward us at all times, in all circumstances, in every need and condition And so we boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses and infirmities and needs that the power of Christ may rest upon us. Let it be to us, O God, according to your word. Amen.